Imagine New Orleans. Low-hanging branches, sweltering humidity, the sounds of laughter and jazz echoing in the breeze. Even if you've never been here, it's probably not that hard to imagine. You know it because of Mardi Gras, because of our open container laws, because of Hurricane Katrina. You know it because of King Cake, Preservation Hall, and Crawfish. But what you might not think of is the fact that New Orleans is one of the most incarcerated areas in Louisiana, which is the most incarcerated state in the U.S., which is the most incarcerated country in the world. The Orleans Parish Prison is one of the largest in the country, and one out of every 55 people in Louisiana is behind bars. But many of those people behind bars, in fact a pretty big majority of them, do come home at some point. They're not all sent away for life sentences. And then what? It's like, why do you have to constantly keep trying to convince somebody to say, okay, can I just become a productive member of society? Can you give me another chance? I don't know, man. But I mean, if, once they learn your past, you know, oh, he's dangerous, you know. He's been to prison. The groups that I've come up with say that it essentially takes two days to heal up from every single day that you are in prison. And so if we think of it like that, um, then someone who's been in a year, it's going to take them at least two years to transition back into life on the outside. 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 Most of us don't think about what it's like to come back from prison. I'm Molly Mulroy, and this is Outside. Most people have this sense that when you're released from prison, well, yeah, life is hard. But if you really dedicate yourself, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, knock on enough doors, you'll get that job, you'll get your life back together. It may be hard, but if you really try, you can do it. But what I've learned, you know, over the years from working with um, many formerly incarcerated people and forming close friendships with many people who've been released from prison, is that it, it's not just hard, it's often impossible. You're released from prison, often with, you know, maybe $20 in your pocket, have nowhere to sleep. You try to return home, maybe to your family who lives in pu public housing. Your family risks eviction in many places if they just even allow you to come home. Um, felons can be excluded from public housing. Whole families can risk eviction if they allow people with felonies to come home to them. Trying to get a job can be next to impossible. Um, you know, people say, well, well, they could get a job at, you know, Burger King or, you know, some minimum wage job. No, actually, you know, many low wage um, jobs are, for all practical purposes, off limits to people who have felonies. Hundreds of professional licenses are off limits to people who have felonies. In my state, in Ohio, until just recently, you could even get a license to be a barber uh, if you'd been convicted of a felony. Food stamps may be off limits to you if you've been convicted of a drug felony. 
Um, you know, what are people released from prison expected to do? Whew. That was a lot of information to take in at one time. So let's dissect it a little. First of all, you're hearing the voice of Michelle Alexander, one of the country's leading scholars on the topics of mass incarceration and racial injustice. It's from an interview she did with Bill Moyers. You may have heard of her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, which came out a few years ago. It's pretty much required reading for anyone in this field. So first she says that post-incarceration, life is hard. There are barriers and stigmas that those of us not in the criminal justice system don't have to deal with. And so she lists some. There's the financial issues. Not only, as Professor Alexander mentioned, you're hardly given anything to live off of when you leave prison, but also that there are numerous fees, fines, and costs you have to deal with once you're out. Probation fees, maybe child support, registration fees if you committed a certain type of offense, transportation, food. Oh, and don't forget that you often can't apply for food stamps if you've got a felony on your record. Then there's housing. As Professor Alexander said, you can not only be denied public housing, but your quote-unquote criminal status can endanger your family's housing opportunities. And, of course, there's employment. Even with the ban-the-box type initiatives, which I'll touch on later, employers can and often do discriminate against those with felonies on their record. And she didn't even touch on the voting rights issue, or barriers to education, denial from higher educational institutions, or the rejection of student loans. But don't worry, we'll get to all of it. For now, though, there's someone I want you to meet. Oh, the day I got released, I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy. I was just, I was sitting there, and I was, I was supposed to go home like in May sometime, but all the paperwork got messed up, so I was just stuck in there. They called my name, and I, I just looked. I said, I'm going home. <laughs> I jumped for joy, and I said, let's go. <laughs> The Department of Correction sent them my release information and they put me on a Greyhound. Mm -hmm. The next day they sent me on the Greyhound. I read a very long, long ride on the Greyhound. Three different buses. This is Terrence. I've met Terrence a few times now. He's a small guy, only 22 years old, but he's been incarcerated six times. It's not important what he was incarcerated for, by the way. That's not what I'm focusing on. I'm focusing on what happens after someone comes home from their incarceration. He grew up here in New Orleans, mainly in the Lower Ninth Ward, but after Hurricane Katrina, his family moved to New Orleans East. The most recent time that I saw Terrence, he was wearing a teal bucket hat and matching sneakers, and he was munching on cookies or some biscuits, I wasn't quite sure. But we talked about food a little bit before getting into our interview, since I had just tried the food at Cafe Reconcile a really great nonprofit restaurant in Central City that hires youth in the New Orleans area to combat intergenerational poverty and violence. It's also got some great soul food. Amazing. So good. Oh my gosh. I had fried catfish, catfish sweet sauce. potatoes. Huh? Yeah, the crawfish sauce. No, I didn't. Oh. Did I miss out? Yeah. All right, well, <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> Terrence told me that one day he'd like to open up well, actually, the way he put it was that he's been chasing the dream of opening up a martial arts studio somewhere in New Orleans to help keep kids and young people off the streets. He's got a black belt, as a matter of fact, and he also really likes guns. 
He wanted to be a weapons specialist for the army, but you can't join the military if you've got a felony on your record. A convicted felon can't own a firearm. Like if they go through the process, they put it in their name and it's theirs. I don't understand it. And me personally, I just like I like taking my guns apart. I like cleaning them. I like going to the shooting range. I like just going to the shooting range. I don't do nothing else with them. Just for the record, I'm not like Terrence in that sense. I don't like guns. That's not what this podcast is about. But out of a sense of fairness, I thought it was important to touch on, especially since he's not the only one who takes issue with this. In fact, much like the question of voting, which I know is a huge issue and I promise we're getting to it soon, there's this sort of weird political aura to the question of felons using guns. Those on the right side of the aisle argue for gun rights, Second Amendment and all that, but not in the case of felons. And those on the left, who normally advocate for stricter gun regulations, also advocate for prisoners' rights and the rights of the formerly incarcerated. But here, let me introduce you to someone else. If you don't have family when you first release, you're in trouble. You might as well just go back and knock on the prison gate. I mean, cause, you know, a person come home, he, he's looking to survive, you know? And you know, you have a lot of anticipation is built up, you know? Uh, 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 you're looking for this, you're looking for that, you know, looking for people to give you this, give you that. A lot of times, it just don't go that way. You know, uh, I was fortunate, but everybody don't have the same thing, you know? That's Eastwood. That's his nickname, anyway. He's a big guy, tall, with long dreads. The first time we met, he was wearing a bright yellow shirt. Almost like a Hawaiian shirt, but a little more formal. Eastwood has spent a grand total of 42 years in prison, both state and federal systems. He works for a law firm here in New Orleans. He's not licensed to actually practice law, but, as he puts it, I can do any and everything that an attorney can do. The only thing I can't do is represent someone in code of law. Eastwood came home this last time in 2013 and just finished his probation this past November with no police run-ins whatsoever. His voting rights have been reinstated, he's employed, and he's happily married. Well, other than when the lights from his late-night cowboy movies keep his wife up all night. And I got a bad tendency of doing that. John Wayne mm -hmm. and... You know, uh, a lot of lot of cowboy pictures, cowboy pictures, period. And maybe in conjunction with his love of cowboy movies, Eastwood is also interested in finding out what's up with the guns. And you know what? And I might take time out for next year's gone and ask him, can I have a gun? Hmm. Because there's no way in the Constitution does it state because you've been a president you can't have a gun. It doesn't state that. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just, I guess just to be messy, I'm about to probably file something just to, you know, mm -hmm. let them know that I want a gun too. Everybody else they have a gun, I can have one too. Mm -hmm. I have a home, I'm a, you know, I got to protect my family too. Mm -hmm. so. Andrea Armstrong, a professor at Loyola Law School here in New Orleans, 
who has worked in the international human rights field and now focuses much of her efforts on the intersection of race and incarceration, can see the argument. Kind of. Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, it's actually interesting. It, it, it's, you could make the same argument as the voting argument, right? You could say that, you know, the Second Amendment provides the right to bear arms. It is a fundamental right, as the Supreme Court has recognized. Um, and that exercise of that right is essential to your dignity as a citizen and your full equality as a citizen. Um, you could make that argument. Um, I think that that is also an argument that is unlikely to succeed. So um, the Louisiana Supreme Court and, and the U.S. Supreme Court have really um, take a very close look, because it's a fundamental right now, take a very close look at any regulations that affect your gun rights. And all of them have said without so much as a pause, of course this doesn't apply to people who have felony records, <laughs> right? There is always that exception. And, you know, I think there, there are good questions around, you know, all felonies, right? So if I commit a nonviolent felony, does that mean I'm forever prohibited? I mean, I think there's, there's interesting questions to be had about the kind of blanket denial of something. At the same time, I think there is very little chance, um, you know, that that would be something courts would eventually find. But there has been way more work done on the voting rights argument, about which both Eastwood and Terrence also expressed frustration. So for background information, only two states in the U.S. allow people to actually vote while inside prison, Maine and Vermont. So not exactly what I'd think of as hotbeds of crime, or hotbeds of people, for that matter. For the rest of the states, you can get your voting rights back after you serve your time, probably. A number of states restore voting rights to people convicted of felonies after they finish their sentence, regardless of probation or parole. Some reinstate the right to vote after probation or parole is finished. And sometimes, in 10 states, it's even possible to lose your voting rights for the rest of your life if you're convicted of certain felonies. Before we go any further, I think it might be helpful to talk about some definitions. What exactly is probation, and how is it different from parole? Essentially, probation is when someone is under mandated supervision by the court, in lieu of serving time behind bars. They still live at home, but if they're under active probation, they have to check in with a probation officer who works for a probation agency, which can sometimes be private, a certain number of times per month. Parole, on the other hand, is generally after someone is incarcerated for some amount of their sentence. This can also be known as supervised or conditional release. For either probation or parole, if the person violates any of the court-mandated conditions of their supervision, they can be sent to prison, or back to prison. I spoke to a Jefferson Parish juvenile probation officer named Keisha Kallix to get a better sense of what these types of release might entail. For in Jefferson Parish, when a juvenile is um, placed on probation, a probation officer is assigned to their case. Um, 
and the juvenile is monitored in order to keep track of their behavior and their activities. And this is done through a periodic personnel context with family, maybe school authorities, employers, and, and others. Um, and under this supervision, um, the juvenile is expected to follow different rules. Each person on probation or parole can have um, different requirements on how many contacts the probation officer is supposed to have, mm -hmm. how often, like, in, for example, on my caseload, um, some of them I only see once a month, some I, I'm required to see them twice a month. Um, for other probation officers, they could see them as much as four times a, a month, weekly, on a weekly basis. So it just, just depends on what level of probation supervision that they have, what's required of them. In The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander writes that, quote, of the nearly 7.3 million people currently under correctional control, only 1.6 million are in prison. This caste system extends far beyond prison walls and governs millions of people who are on probation and parole, primarily for nonviolent offenses. They have been swept into the system, branded criminals or felons, and ushered into a permanent second-class status, acquiring records that will follow them for life. End quote. For example, this is Nelson. Uh, I was a high school student, uh, honor roll student, uh, Star Trek athlete. Uh, never had any adverse um, things dealing with the law. Absolute first offense of any kind. Um, my parents were prominent people in uh, the community, raised by both parents, uh, even though uh, they were divorced. So um, I, I was an anomaly. I was, you know, this wasn't supposed to happen to me. I was kind of like the um, all-American African-American kid who, you know, was supposed to, you know, do the right thing and, um, you know, set an example for everybody. Nelson spent almost 20 years in prison and was released under supervised parole in 2015, a supervised parole that will last another 20 years, even though he was only 16 when he was arrested. So Nelson has never voted. So remember that list I mentioned a few minutes ago of the 10 states where you could lose the right to vote forever? Interestingly enough, Louisiana isn't on it, but Florida is. And in fact, Florida's statistics are pretty jaw-dropping. The Sentencing Project, who I adore and would love to work for if anyone's listening, reported that out of the 6 million U.S. citizens who have lost the right to vote because of a felony, 1.7 million of them live in Florida. That's almost a third. Roughly one out of three voters disenfranchised because of their felony convictions in the entire United States lives in Florida. And one out of five of those disenfranchised Floridians, please note, is African American. We'll touch on that in the next episode. But regardless of skin color, or even regardless of offense or sentence, one of the biggest arguments about voting, much like the gun argument that we talked about earlier, is whether voting is a right or a privilege. If you always hear the phrase, the right to vote, why have people throughout history, even up until today, even in this country, had to fight so hard for it? Is it truly a right? Is it something that fundamentally makes you an American citizen? And what is a citizen? And do you give up that right if you commit an act that violates American laws? Do you give up that citizenhood? These are the types of questions people in the field are trying to answer, 
both conceptually and through the courts. So Professor Armstrong has actually been helping with some litigation going on in the city right now that's being spearheaded by Voices of the Ex-Offender, or VOTE for short, a nonprofit organization run by Norris Henderson. Henderson himself was incarcerated for almost 30 years at Angola, or the Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's called Angola because so many of the slaves who originally worked on the plantations upon which the penitentiary was built were brought here from Angola, the country. Just think about that for a second. But Henderson has done some incredible work since his release in the early 2000s, and this litigation has been getting lots of attention. Bill Quigley, another Loyola Law professor who has worked for years on a myriad of social justice issues like the death penalty, education reform, and civil disobedience, is part of the main legal team in the case. I'll let him explain it a little more. Louisiana is, a, is one of the states that doesn't allow people who are, have been convicted of felonies to vote even if they're out of prison, if they're on probation or parole. Mm -hmm. And we have a lawsuit that Professor Armstrong has helped with um, on behalf of about 70,000 people in Louisiana who fit that category. These are people who have been convicted or pled guilty to a felony, are uh, on probation or parole, so it means they're out, they're working, they're getting drug mm -hmm. tested, they're checking in, you know, they are as good uh, citizens as there are, but we don't let them vote. Yep, you heard that right. 70,000 people. So a class action lawsuit, essentially a group lawsuit, with 70,000 separate claims, separate grievances by people who have been adversely affected by the way in which Louisiana handles voting rights. You might be thinking, well, with that many complaints, the case is sure to go through. And you might be right. In fact, the Brennan Center for Justice, who I also would love to work for, by the way, reports that, quote, in the last two decades, more than 20 states have changed their criminal disenfranchisement policies to expand voter eligibility or make the restoration process less restrictive, end quote. But as historically tough as Louisiana has been on its offending population, it's hard to say. We'll just have to wait and see. But maybe if the case does go well, Terrence and Nelson, like Eastwood, will have their voting rights reinstated. Or if not, Nelson might have to wait until he's pushing 60. So we're running out of time here for episode one, but before we go, I wanted to introduce you to the one other person I've been speaking with these past few months. When I was in prison, you never really heard the good stories. You only heard the bad because of the people that were constantly coming back. And it would be some people that you're like, oh, my God, I know when they get out, they'll make it. And then, like, 30 days later, they're back. Mm -hmm. And you're like, damn, if they couldn't do it, how am I going to do it? Meet Sarita. I first heard Sarita speak at a Catholic charity symposium I went to this past October. She spoke about her experiences to a room full of people from all walks of life. She told us she was incarcerated at the age of 19, and served 10 years in four different institutions. She now works as a medical technologist and runs her own nonprofit, Operation Restoration, which works to help women with the transition when they get released from prison. Well, really, I'm gonna tell you, we do whatever is needed. So um, I have women that come, they need clothes. Because, I mean, for me, it had been 10 years. I didn't even have underwear when I got out. It's simple things. So clothes. Um, I think that the key to help 
women start to get their life back or start to feeling better is also how they look. That gives you a confidence. Even if the inside is all messed up, if the outside is better, then you start working on the inside. So we do that. I help with FAFSAs. I help with um, applying to schools, um, money, you know, the resources, whatever resources we have. You know, so it's it's whatever is needed. Ultimately, I would like to move out of the smaller stuff and focus on um, just education and helping women get into higher education situations. And I'm also like developing a lab assistant program now to be able to go into St. Gabriel and teach the women there and potentially have them licensed before they are released. Because I just feel like if you are equipped and ready to get out, it makes the transition a lot easier. The Sentencing Project reports that between 1980 and 2014, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%. 700%. Sarita says that women are the fastest growing population of incarcerated individuals in the U.S. But we don't really think about women in prison all that often. Images of people in prison in the media and the entertainment industry are usually restricted to men particularly men of color, and we don't really see images of women in prison unless we're watching Orange is the New Black. Interesting fact, Sarita actually knows the main character of that show, Piper Kerman. They were incarcerated together. And a caveat, I've never watched it. But it's important to be aware of these different populations inside the prison walls. And it's important to remember that roughly 9 out of 10 of the people incarcerated will be coming home. You know, so my goal through Operation Restoration is actually being able to go into the prisons speaking and allowing these women to know that there is hope when you get out. It's not easy, but if you're willing to work hard, this is what you can do and this is how you can do it. Hmm. So providing like that blueprint for them to have a successful transition back into society because a lot of times they have all these experts, people who read books, and they're like, okay, this is the best way to do it. But for me, it's like, I'm the expert. Hmm. I know how to do it because I did it. I have 10 other friends who had did the same exact thing. Some have kids, some don't. Some have mental health issues, some don't. You know, so we have a variety of ways that you carry into society successfully. Before we finish up, I also wanted to note that the stories of these four individuals, Terrence, Eastwood, Nelson, and Sarita, who were willing to talk to me over the past few months, are not necessarily representative of the issues that everyone who is formerly incarcerated has faced or will face in the future. Just as these experiences are different for Sarita and Terrence, they could be vastly different for me and Sarita, or me and you, or you and Eastwood. Just as with women who are incarcerated, there has been much erasure of LGBTQ plus experiences in prison, as well as other minority populations, including Asian American and Native American incarcerated people. It's important to note everyone's experiences, but that's not necessarily what this podcast has set out to do. I'm simply taking the experiences of four people kind enough and strong enough to share their stories with me, and share them with you in a way that makes it clear that life is not always peachy keen on the outside.
Thank you.